Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. again to the Explaining History podcast and today I want to talk a little bit about the expansion of the SS during the 1930s. The SS goes through a a number of key transitions during the 1930s. The first of course is uh, following the Night of the Long Knives. So prior to the Night of the Long Knives um, the uh, coup against the leadership of the SA where they are uh, arrested, about 300 or so are uh, arrested at um, Bad Wiesberg um, and uh, executed. Um, the concerns that uh, Hitler had uh, about the um, SA, the Sturmabteilung, uh, the brown shirts, um, had been mounting for um, almost a year and they had been fueled by Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS. The SS was a subsection of the SA at this point uh, and had been established in the mid-1920s as kind of Hitler's Praetorian Guard, Hitler's sort of um, elite bodyguard. But throughout the uh, 1920s and 30s, the role of the SS dramatically changes and uh, begins to uh, sort of expand and spread and become a kind of entirely kind of amorphous um, amorphous kind of entity moving into all sorts of kind of different areas of of, of, regi- of sort of regime life. Um, the fact that Hitler was so fond of creating parallel institutions uh, that mirrored and subverted uh, state institutions, uh, a parallel kind of legal system. Uh, and a parallel kind of system of imprisonment, meant that there was lots of scope for a kind of a mass parallel organisation like the SS. The uh, Night of the Long Knives is... And it was the culmination of a long process um, of the breakdown in relations between um, Hitler and the SA. The uh, SA uh, had never viewed itself, never really been formally part of the Nazi party had really and it had really been the kind of the auxiliary paramilitary wing of the Nazi movement so uh, it was um, organized reorganized by Instrom uh, Hitler's insistence during the 1920s 
but many uh, brown shirts viewed um, the party members as uh, simply a, a, another face, another sort of um, face of the bourgeoisie, and the rhetoric that Rome used in the period 1933 to 34 often talks about this about how the the kind of the um the the pen pushers of the party would have to eventually be swept aside if they tried to get in the way of what Rome saw as the the next phase of uh, the German revolution um Hitler uh, 6 months into the Nazi regime said that the there would, uh, in his one of his kind of taking stock sort of meetings, um, said that there would be no second revolution, that the idea was not necessary, that the bad elements had been swept away, and now what was necessary was the consolidation uh, of the regime. And so the um, prospect of a, a kind of an increasingly restless essay alarmed Hitler. Much of this was Rome's drunken talk um, and, and rhetoric, uh, and much of this was um, blown out of all proportion by Goering, uh, Himmler and Goebbels, uh, alarming Hitler with lurid stories about secret conspiracies within the essay. But there had been another problem that the essay had represented. When Hitler is um, appointed as Chancellor on the 30th of January, 1933, uh, the essay are able to uh, act in whatever way they see fit, by and large, for the, for the next six months. Um, as uh, Minister-President of Prussia, uh, Goering had given the essay um, essentially auxiliary police powers, enabling them to arrest who they want and remain effectively above the law. Um, the result of this was that um, the uh, promise that Hitler made about restoring law and order in Germany um, is becomes in increasingly farcical as the essay are able to go on a violent rampage for the next six months and uh, discredit themselves um, or discredit the regime in the eyes of those crucial middle class voters who Hitler is trying to court and reassure. Um, one thing that uh, was very attractive was the idea that law and order was going to be restored to Germany, and the essay's example tended to suggest otherwise. So um, the final straw for the essay is the decision by Rome to uh, write to Defence Minister Blomberg and demand that the army be um, essentially absorbed into the essay. The army would now become a training corps to teach the new SA how to uh, fight as a professional military organisation. And the Blomberg and the generals saw this as really being kind of effectively the, the end of the German army. And Hitler's deal with the army was that if something was done about uh, Ernst Röhm, then the army would give Hitler a personal oath of loyalty. Not simply just an oath of loyalty from the officer corps to the German Republic, but to Hitler himself. Um, the uh, task of dealing with Rome is done uh, swiftly and ruthlessly, and many Germans afterwards, when news leaks out a, a week or two later, 
look upon what is done as being, if unpleasant, then certainly necessary. The result was that the SS were given their autonomy, they became a separate institution under um, Heinrich Himmler, uh, and they begin to rapidly grow from there. Now, we've looked at uh, throughout the last uh, few months at the development of the camp system that falls under the auspices of the SS. But now, let's look at how the SS develop um, out of the camp system. Um, and again, we're looking at KL by Nicholas Vashman. Um, and he writes today about um, the military ambitions of Heinrich Himmler in the mid-1930s. And he says, Himmler liked to see the camp SS as soldiers. By presenting his men as warriors fighting the scum of Germany, he hoped to boost their profile and elevate them above mere prison guards. But Himmler's use of military imagery was more than just rhetoric. From early on, he envisaged his guards as paramilitaries who patrolled not only the make-believe battlefields inside camps, but who had also served beyond the barbed wire during national emergencies, as the Dachau SS uh, had done during the Rome Putsch in 1934. Hardened uh, by the confrontation with enemies in concentration camps, he argued his special forces could be trusted to fight terrorists outside. The transformation of the SS guard troops into a paramilitary force began early, already in the mid-1930s. Sentry service around the KL was just one of their duties. As we've seen, the men spent considerably more time on military drills. Initially, guard troop commanders struggled with poor equipment. In Dachau, they did not even have enough reserve munitions. This changed after Hitler agreed to fund the Death's Head SS from the Reich budget. More weapons for combat now poured into the guard troops, which, um, which set up additional machine gun formations. In Dachau, the dilapidated old barracks were replaced by a vast training camp, symbolising the military intentions of the SS. In Sachsenhausen too, a big new complex was built by prisoners near the camp, as a base for SS excursions. In Sachsenhausen, meanwhile, prisoners constructed a new and modern shooting range, complete with movable targets. Most significantly, the SS continued to recruit far more guard troops than it needed for the running of the camps. SS personnel rose from an estimate, estimated 1,700 in January 1935 to 4,300 three years later keeping the staff-inmate ratio well between 1 to 2. Although the force was still small, there was no mistake of the ambitions of its leaders. Now, there is some context here that you, you might know if you've listened to previous podcasts uh, on the SS that I've done. But the guard troop, and particularly the, the Death's Head um, SS, were viewed really as being uh, the, the inferior cousins of other branches of the organization. For example, from 1933 onwards, um, the Liebstandart Adolf Hitler, um, the uh, special group, uh, a special group, a Sonderkommando of the um, uh, SS, uh, that would eventually form part of the Waffen-SS, the uh, fighting divisions of the, the SS, were seen as the kind of the, the elite force in the organization 
and they were led by um, Sepp Dietrich, um, who would eventually um, end the war, um, encircle, uh, uh, trying to prevent the Soviet encirclement of Berlin with the the, the Waffen SS. Um, the uh, Liebstandard Adolf Hitler um, was seen as the, as the most kind of a, attractive uh, and dynamic and um, purposeful and uh, powerful um, aspect of the SS. The camp SS uh, themselves often had ambitions to serve outside the camp. Um, they viewed having to interact with prisoners as being um, something, uh, an unple- something unpleasant that they didn't really wish to do. Um, they viewed it as a, sort of a, a disgrace and a humiliation, and obviously they, they're ideologically and socially and racially, um, their um, animus, their hatred was directed um, towards the prisoners. Um, and they saw uh, being um, lumbered with the prisoners as uh, a kind of a, an imposition on uh, ideally what what they would prefer to be doing, which was um, something paramilitary, something military, something paramilitary. It was always kind of ill-defined. Um, it was a, almost the kind of ambition to play soldiers outside the the walls of the camp. Himmler himself had these ambitions for them. It's not that Himmler was without his um, uh, sort of fighting units. As I said, from 1933 onwards, the Liebstandard Adolf Hitler, um, that eventually becomes the Waffen-SS, is there. Though it's very, very small. And I think Himmler thought that it would be possible to use the um, uh, camp-SS uh, eventually to be the mainstay of a kind of an auxiliary army or even a kind of an alternate army. Nicholas Vashman writes, The creeping militarisation of the camp was part of a bigger plan by Himmler, the creation of an independent SS formations for deployment at the front. The German army, ever since its conflict with the SA leader Ernst Röhm, was paranoid about the military aspirations of Nazi leaders, and in Himmler's case, the generals were right to worry. Despite his hollow denials, Himmler was not content with establishing the SS and police as a force inside Germany. He was gunning for the army's monopoly of military might. Speaking to senior SS commanders in 1938, he claimed that it was their solemn duty to, t- to stand tall on the battlefield. Um, were we not to bring blood sacrifices, and were we not to fight at the front, we would lose the moral right to shoot, the sh- shoot at shirkers and cowards at home. Using all his guile, he directed um, his direct line to Hitler and his talent for bureaucratic sparring, Himmler won the upper hand in the turf war with the army. Initially, his hope of creating an SS division centred mainly on the new SS troop for special duty, formed in autumn 1934 out of different smaller armed units. But also, um, he also began to consider the use of SS guard troops beyond the German borders, Erasing the boundary between the internal and the external front. So, for people like Himmler and Hitler, there had never been any boundary between an internal front, a war fought at home, and an external front, a war fought overseas, uh, or a war fought beyond Germany's borders. 
because both wars were always going to be racial wars. And for racial wars, you need racial warriors. The war at home, in Hitler's uh, and Himmler's eyes, was a war, firstly, uh, against the, um, the, the deviant social classes of Germany. Once, the, the, once uh, political opposition had been removed, then uh, deviant social classes, the asocials that we've talked about recently, um, those who were considered work-shy, again, lesbian people, and the, the, sort of the social ballast um, that Hitler said was the real reason why Germany had lost the First World War. Those people who had been um, useless eaters, who had been an encumbrance on the Third Reich um, and led to a failure at war. Um, that was the first, uh, the, the first uh, enemy. Racial enemies, particularly the, the Jews, but also the Roma and Sinti people, um, were the kind of the, the next target of, uh, of the regime. And the racial purification of Germany, the racial uh, improvement of Germany in the eyes of Hitler, was really part of the process of preparing Germany for the next war that would ultimately undo the failings of the first one, the losses of the first one. So in 1939, when the uh, forces of the Third Reich um, and the Soviet Union divide Poland uh, between them, and you have areas such as East Prussia and the Wartegau um, absorbed into the Reich, um, and the new uh, colony of the general government in Poland, the cent of central Poland in essence, established. It is administered by the SS because another front in the racial war has opened as far as Hitler and Himmler are concerned. And so uh, racial warriors on the battlefield um, are what uh, Himmler envisages. This racial warfare is less about um, fighting battles uh, against uh, Polish and later uh, Soviet army formations, though obviously the, the Waffen-SS participate in all of that, but it's about the, um, the racial struggle that follows that, so the mass killings um, that occur uh, with by the, the SS, the army, and the Einsatzgruppen um, auxiliaries as they, they follow behind, and it's also about the um, uh, imprisonment of the uh, the Polish population, uh, the the elites of the Polish population, and the uh, mass killing and extermination of the, the Jews and Roma. And this is the kind of racial warfare that uh, Hitler and Himmler envisaged. And the ultimate goal is uh, of Hitler's war was to be a, a racial goal, not only to um, demonstrate that the Aryan race um, in Hitler's ideas about racial struggle was the uh, was was the, the the dominant race, but also then to procure the resources necessary for the kind of the the, the growth of the Aryan race, and also uh, to remove from nature itself uh, the Jews. Um, the it's really uh, kind of critical reading of Mein Kampf by Timothy Snyder, who points out that 
the way that Hitler conceived of the Jews was that they were actually removed, for, they were actually sort of something apart from nature, that they were part, not part of uh, the system of nature whatsoever. They were some kind of malignant force that really didn't have any place in the world whatsoever. Um, and instead of seeing them as a million inferior people, he saw them as a, uh, an existential threat to the continuance of the Aryan race and of civilization in Europe. So Nicholas Rushman continues. The military role of the SS was cemented in the late 30s as the European war loomed ever closer. One landmark was Hitler's secret decree of August the 17th, 1938, drafted by Himmler, which confirmed that SS formations would be deployed on the battlefield. As for the death's head units specifically, they would greatly expand to serve as a standing armed SS troop for tackling special duties of a police nature. This cryptic phrase still pointed to a domestic deployment of camp SS men. However, a few months earlier, members of the Dachau Guard Troop had already engaged in a first foray onto foreign soil, marching into Austria in March 1938 under the command of the German army. Soon, other opportunity, soon another opportunity presented itself. In autumn 1938, four Death Battalions took part in the occupation of the Sudetenland. They were led by Theodor Eich, who presented his men during the first review on Czech soil to Hitler. The following May, soon after the Death's Head troops had participated in the takeover of the rest of Czech territory, Hitler issued yet another decree officially recognising the military role of SS Death's Head units um, in wartime, some camp SS men would join the front line. Now, this, uh, again, presents us with a lot of very interesting possibilities here. That um, Hitler saw this uh, increasingly paramilitary force as still having some kind of policing role. And the, the only interpretation I think that uh, is realistic to put on that is that Hitler envisaged them having a uh, a kind of a camp and paramilitary role in Poland and in other occupied countries. Uh, and this might possibly be evidence of deeper pre-planning uh, of um, the Holocaust, or it might simply um, be evidence of Hitler considering how domestic populations would be brought to heel most effectively by a, uh, an occupying army. The militarisation of the SS gave camp bureaucrats uh, equivalent ranking with Wehrmacht generals. So um, the pen pushers and kind of casual bullies of the, or well, professional bullies in point of fact, uh, of the uh, SS who had been able to throw their weight around in the confines of a, uh, a prison camp, were now able to act out their various fantasies of uh, a great um, high um, military office. And the, the most significant example of that was Theodor Eich. Um, in the 1930s, Eich um, really threw himself into the expansion of the guard troops, um, the, at the expense of the camp system itself, um, later on, uh, Rudolf Hurst, who was the uh, commandant at Auschwitz, said, Eich showed 
incredible generosity when it came to the guard troop, demanding the best facilities and equipment for them and headhunting um, new recruits, um, demanding um, ever greater um, numbers uh, to be allocated to him um, and poaching uh, even enlisted soldiers from the armed forces. He said, bring them from the bars, bring them from the sports clubs, bring them from the barber. As far as I'm concerned, you can bring them from the brothels. Bring them from every place you meet them. Um, there was limited success to this expansion. Um, Ike attracted many new recruits, but the quality of them was questionable. The size of the um, deaths had uh, doubled. Um, by the end of 1938, it was 10,441 troops. Um, but by the following summer, this had grown even further to about 13,000 uh, full-time members. And at, the time, uh, at that time, the Death's Head um, uh, SS um, were well-equipped with um, weapons having possession of 800 machine guns, 1,500 machine pistols, 20,000 rifles um, by mid-1939. And so that meant that by the eve of the Second World War, the SS... Um, the camp SS particularly was ready for action and had been fully equipped and was able to uh, fight a war and fight at the front line. Um, okay, so let's finish there and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Bye bye.